Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I am Ken Krantz. Uh, Chip couldn't make it today, but I am so excited. Uh, I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. Uh, my guest is a singer, songwriter. Uh, he's celebrating the 20th anniversary of his landmark album, Shasha. And uh, he is um, he's doing a, a couple very special intimate shows to celebrate the 20th anniversary. And he's going to be at Racket in New York City on November 18th and 19th. And um, please welcome Ben Queller to the show. Oh, hello. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. So happy to be here. Uh, I'm very happy to I'm very happy to have you. And um, I have uh, I've been I've been doing my research and um, I I, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of great stories for us <laughs> <laughs> for some reason. But let's let's start with the 20th anniversary of Shasha. 20th anniversary of Shasha. Well, yeah, this is an album that. I, I guess you gotta you sort of have to rewind a little bit before uh, the the early two thousands into the mid to late nineties, mm -hmm. where I had a band called Radish. We were like this little kind of grunge trio from Dallas, Texas, and we were Radish. You know, we were like pretty rad ish. That was our thing, <laughs> and um, and you know, we. Uh, it's kind of kind of crazy to think about now, but somehow we signed a major label record deal when I was 15 years old. I, I saw so, that. That's crazy. Oh my god! So I um, so that was incredible, and I was like, okay, this is the shit. So what I did was I took my GED, which stands for Good Enough Diploma, <laughs> and I left high school in my freshman year. Which is nuts to think about looking back. And it's like, wow, I only went through like halfway through ninth grade. I have a ninth grade education, but like not even because I didn't even finish ninth grade. Anyway, I just like went on tour and never looked back. And so that was Radish. And we went on tour with Faith No More. That was our first big tour. And we did Lollapalooza. And then, of course, we headlined a whole bunch in like a, a beat up Dodge van and like sleeping on floors and stuff. So it was like a little bit of everything in those few years. And then it, when uh, the turn of the century came about, remember Y2K happened and nothing really <laughs> happened. But at that point, I was living in New York City and I was in love with this girl, Liz, and we were living together. And I started writing just like more autobiographical songs. And that's when I sort of realized that, like, I guess I'll just be Ben Queller now. So it was really kind of like this combination of a few events of like me leaving Texas. So I wasn't near my band. I fell in love with this girl writing more personal songs. And uh, that's when I, and I looked around the room. I didn't have any bandmates. I was really just by myself. So I was like, okay, I'll be Ben Queller. So then that led up to the debut album, Shasha. Yes. And, um, but, but I, I just want, I want to backtrack for one second. So I read, and forgive me if I got this wrong, but I read that you started Radish when you were 12 mm -hmm. and then was touring the world by 15. Yeah. That is, yeah. that's. This is accurate. It's yeah, fucked up. Dude. It's fucked when and when you look back now, um, you know, I'm especially as as a parent, when when you look back yeah. and, and you realize what you were doing at such a young age, it's that's gotta blow your fucking mind. Yeah. It's like kind of like when you think about people in like the eighteen hundreds, you know, or like, you know, the seventeen hundreds where like they would apprentice with the shoemaker, like, like people did like, you know, 200 years ago, like you were having a livelihood by the time you were 16, 17. Right. Yeah. You know but, I mean? but you only lived till you were like 25. <laughs> so it exactly, made sense. Right. Well, <laughs> so I'm already doing pretty good there, I guess. I'm still living. But, you know, I have no idea, man. It's weird. Like all I can make of it is that like every kid is different, you know, and like every, everybody kind of develops at a different 
in a different, you know, sequent time continuum, you know? And so like, I don't know. I mean, I, here's the other thing is like, I started writing songs when I was eight. So, you know, by the time I was 12, like I had already put in my 10,000 hours as, as far as songwriting. So you know what I mean? crazy to so me. Yeah. It's, just, it's weird. Like, and so then by the time, you know, I was 15, it, my parents were like, yeah, I mean, well, duh. Like, of course he got a record deal. This is all he's been doing since he was fucking eight years old. I mean, I was obsessed, man. Yeah. Like just music. And it was just songwriting. You know, the Beatles made me write songs and Nirvana made me put together a band. That that was kind of that was it, you know. It's it's funny you say that because um, so I I went back and I I'd never heard uh, I'd never heard Shasha before, cool. um, but I went back, you know, when when we when I knew I was going to be interviewing you, I went and and listened yeah. to it, and it's funny that you said Nirvana and the Beatles because those were two uh, those were two vibes that I definitely cool. that I definitely got from the album. Yeah. Um and and it was it was like all of that great uh early 2000s. It sounded like a lot of those great early 2000s influence. I could hear Weezer in there and um uh but there was also it, it so you you had two versions of this album. Like this album seems like it had a strange Yeah. Yeah, is there a yeah, I think I I yeah. You were on a Wikipedia probably because yes, there, yeah. there, um, yeah. So there is like this really kind of fractured discography between Radish and Ben Queller, which um, you know I have some super fans that are very like accountable for <laughs> no every iteration of this. So like basically, long story short, or why well, I even say that because I'm not good at making anything short. But, um, so like. You know, Radish was on Mercury Records. So, but but what's we we made one album, we made our second album, and uh it was like this double disc album. We went real decadent and uh and then Mercury got bought. There was a corporate merger, like Polygram got bought by Universal, and then the whole thing became Island Def Jam Music Group. It was like a whole 90s thing that happened often with these big uh record companies. And um, and so then the new regime came in and didn't want to release the Radish album. So uh, we were kind of shit out of luck. But at the same time, they saw that I had talent, like the new people recognized that I was talented and was like, OK, well, have you thought about making a solo record? And I was like, actually, yeah, like I'm writing all this other stuff now and um, blah, blah, blah. And, and so they're like, all right, cool. Well, why don't you? You know, just keep writing music. We're going to set you up with different producers and you can start demoing. And then I got caught in this major label, typical major label cycle of like, you're just going to keep writing and demoing for the rest of your life and you're never, ever going to make an album, which was very common back then. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot cheaper to keep, you know, if you're a made one of these big ass labels, like it's easier to just kind of keep these artists, you know, work, you know, writing and recording than it is to like commit to to a marketing campaign and actually making an album. So anyway, after a few months of that, I kind of got fed up. And so I started recording songs in my apartment in Carroll Gardens. So I was living in Brooklyn at that point. And um, and so one of the and and so as I was recording, I, I knew that Radish had this really cool album. And so I and I knew I liked some of those songs. And so I did make like this Shasha CD illegally, mm -hmm. which had some of my new recordings from my apartment, plus some of the Radish recordings that Mercury didn't want to release. And so there was this homemade CDR that was called Shasha. And I think on, you know, the, the super like archivist BK fans will call it version one, version two. Oh, yeah, that's that's what I'm not I, saw. As, I need to like go. Like if we pulled it up, I could tell you, oh, yeah, these are the differences. But I don't remember. <laughs> but then so like I did do this like Shasha CD, but then I kept recording these cool songs that I was really into. And so I made it a proper album called Freak Out. It's Ben Queller. 
And I pressed up a thousand CDs. That was like actually manufactured at a local shop in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You know, we did a thousand CDs. But that was illegal, I would say, of me (laughs) um, because I was under contract with Mercury. It's like Radish was under contract, but they didn't want to put out our music. I knew I couldn't record anything, but so I was I was sort of tired of getting the runaround. So I um, basically made this CD, and that's when things really started to click for me as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. So one day I got a call, and and it was a voicemail on my phone, and it was like, "Hey Ben, this is Evan Dando from the Lemonheads, and I just got this Freak Out CD, and I can't stop listening to it. Give me a call." And I was like, "Holy shit! Like I loved the Lemonheads. They were, you know, he was up there like yeah. Kurt Cobain." Yeah, me, you know, yeah. Kid. they were a huge and influential so, band. They were fucking huge, man. So, and so that was really the shift for me because up until that point, through the whole 90s music biz stuff and me being 15 and like they, you know, uh, all of these record exec people flying to Texas and meeting us and limousines and all the bullshit. Up until that point, when Evan called, the only people kissing my ass were like, you know, these business people. Mm -hmm. Evan was the first person where I really kind of felt like, holy shit, this is someone I really look up to and admire, like a fellow artist that recognized what I was doing. So that was a really, I really, the Evan Dando call was a moment for me. And and it was, that was probably the year like 2000, 2001. And so then I started opening for Evan. Then he gave my CD to Juliana Hatfield. And then like next thing you know, it gets to Chicago and Jeff Tweedy calls and wants me to open for him. It's like all these artists. So I'm going into the Mercury or the Island Def Jam mm-hmm. offices and I'm taking flyers like, hey, dude, I'm opening for Wilco or like, check this out. Like, come to the Mercury Lounge. I'm opening for Lemonheads. And they were like so confused because they were like, "What? how are you getting these gigs? Like, you're not ready. You're not ready for this, man. Like you're supposed to be in the studio writing and demoing, you know, and they didn't know that I made the CD, you know, like, I don't even know if I should be talking about this on a podcast because I've always I, wondered, you know. Oh, nobody hears this. It's fine. Years, ah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, just, it's just us talking. But yeah, it's just us. But, you know, I mean, whatever. So long story short, again, it won't be short. I don't know. Why I keep saying that, but um this guy came up to me at one of the Evan Dando gigs and said, hey, I'm starting a record label with Dave Matthews. It's called ATO Records. We'd love for you to be our first artist. And I was like, oh, my God, let's do it. Because, like, you guys actually care about what I'm doing. We're this island. Yeah. FGM people didn't. So... There was a way to get out of the Mercury Island Def Jam Radish contract. So the day that I signed the departure papers to Island Def Jam, I signed on to ATO Records as their first worldwide signing. And then we went in to record Shasha, which was pretty much a combination of new songs I had written, plus a few songs from the unreleased Radish album, plus some songs from that Shasha version one. So that's how we get to Shasha. Yeah. It's a rocky road, but hopefully I've explained it kind of somewhat, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. You 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 explained it perfectly. And um but I, I wanna go back. So you, you so you get the phone call from Evan Dando, and, and I know you just touched on this, but it's yeah. there really is um there's like no better feeling, right? Than than having than having a you know, somebody that you idolized is now treating you as a peer. Yes. And yeah, all in all art forms, right? Music, like whatever the hell you do. Yes. Like it's like it's one thing when, you know, these people are like, hey, kid, we're going to make you a star. You know, it's like that's like, okay, whatever. But like when someone's like, dude, I love that chorus, you know, when it's just you speak the same language as our fellow creators. Yes. Right. Like it's just. It's just a different thing. And, you know, there are amazing people in showbiz that like work and and managers and agents and all that. And and luckily, I feel very blessed The, you know, the 25 plus whatever years I've been doing this, like I am surrounded by amazing people in the business. But back then in 2000, you know, it was a little shaky. And so, yes, the artist having having artists that you respect come up to you and appreciate what you do is the best it, it's it because it keeps you going it keeps you going through uh self-doubt 
You know, yep. it, it keeps you going through the lean times. Like, oh, maybe, yep. I, maybe I am on the something. I remember I was doing I, – I got into comedy because of – I don't know if you remember the show Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Mm. Uh, it, it was, Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. He would just have a panel of comedians on every night and just uh, goof on whatever current events were happening. Yes. I and that. I would watch the show and it was before I'd gotten in the standup and it was just the show made me laugh so hard that it pushed me into like, hey, maybe this is something I can try. And uh, I remember, you know, I was probably doing comedy already six or seven years and I worked with Colin Quinn and uh, I had a I had I had a good I had a very good. I was very lucky to have a very good set in front of him. And um, I just remember him pulling me aside and telling me uh, how much he enjoyed it. And um, I was like, there's there's no better feeling that that was better. That's better than the applause. It's better than the club owners telling you that you're good. It was it's, there's no better feeling. Yes. Agreed. Um, I wanted to ask. I um, so I, I went back. I started pulling up reviews of cool. Shasha. And wow. some of them were, um, I mean, some of them were glowing and some of them were like kind of goofy almost. And I, I was, I read, I read, um, I don't know if you ever read it or remember it. Pop album of the year. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, or the halls of bins. Like there was the, a whole, yes, yeah. that's the, yes, that yes. Pitchfork. <laughs> Yeah, 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 of course. You know, like, welcome. That was like a non-review review. It wasn't a review, and I read it, and I and then I felt, and it's weird. I know the album's 20 years old, but I, I was reading it this morning, and I, I, I was like, I don't even know this guy. And, I, I like, I feel bad because I would have been angry, you know, like if, if I had. Oh, yeah. I, now, I will say, I, I for whatever reason, if it's genetic or what, but I do feel very lucky that I – have never taken reviews and like that's what I yeah to heart. That is a so I feel lucky. I have friends that do this that it eats them up every review they read. Every you know what I mean. So I I feel lucky there. Um, but yeah, I that that was just a I was just like that's a weird review because for people that didn't read it, it was just basically like I was fresh on the scene in new york and all they talked about was my first name ben yes and yes they're like, they're like welcome to the halls of ben we now have ben queller but you also have ben folds and ben lee and blah 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 it was just weird but whatever yeah so that's i was wondering uh how you took them because i would have been because i read the whole thing and i was like they didn't there's like not one fucking thing in here about the album or the sound or the production or it's just lazy. Um, but then somewhere along the line, you end up in a side project called the Benz. The Benz, yeah. Well, that was <laughs> With, part of that was intentionally because not because of that review, but there was uh, literally like a message board back in the message board days, pre Reddit folks. Um, there was someone who was like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a super group with Ben Folds, Ben Queller, and Ben Lee? And they called it the Bens. Like, literally, they, like, spelled out the blueprint. Yep. And Folds, and we were all friends, and and Folds called us up and was like, dude, did you guys see this message board thing? Like, we should do it. Like, almost as, like, not a prank, but, like, just to, like, make one person's dream come true. Like, it was just kind of the idea of, like, this one guy on the internet. <laughs> oh, hey, man, that's awesome. Wouldn't this be cool? And then we were like, let's just fucking grant that you know what i mean it's kind of a fun vibe so that was there was you know there was that was kind of risky for us three because at the, up until that point none of us had ever really written songs with anyone else like we've always been just solo songwriters mm -hmm. and so uh foldsy at that point was live we refer to each other by our last names obviously so folds and we add the Y because that's an Australian thing. Foldsy, mate. Um, <laughs> for Ben Lee, anyway. Uh, Folds was living in Nashville and had access to this amazing studio. And he said, why don't you guys come out for a few days? And so we were there for three days. We wrote and recorded four songs in three days, start to finish, written, recorded everything, like fucking fast. It was it was either going to be awesome or not. And it was like so beyond what we ever could have imagined. 
That's so, so great. It was a very special experience. The you, you know what else I love about that is that there's one guy who put that out on a message board and then it came true. And then he probably went and told his friends like, hey, I did this. And they all laughed at him. Like, yeah, shut exactly. up, asshole. I know. I know. <laughs> you, didn't get, you didn't get a super group of Ben's to form. There's no way. Shut up, dick. <laughs> like, I know what I would have said to my friend if he told me that. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Um, so, yeah, there's that. So you you come out of like that that early uh, 2000s New York scene, right? Like it's it was the Strokes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Interpol oh. and um, yeah, Holy Peaches. Yep, and I don't I don't know if it's like just me because because of my age and like now I'm getting older where um, even finding new music seems challenging. Yeah. And I'll, yeah. and I think I'm like I I read you know like I, for some reason I still read Rolling Stone even though it's just done nothing but make me furious for 20 years, right? But I because it was so cool when I was a kid and I like that was how I stayed up to date. Um, but um, so for me like that that was in in my mind anyway that was like the last really cool scene. Uh, that was, was like the last sort of a real exciting moment for yeah. rock music. Yeah. And um, so and, – and then it seemed if you watch like that Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary, um, it, it's incredible. Like it almost seems like just the success of the Strokes. Uh, it, they were the Nirvana. Yeah, you know? started this it, entire it, scene. Yeah. They really, they really did. I mean it was crazy. I remember – uh, like in 99, 2000, just walking around the Lower East Side. The first person that I met in the scene was Adam Green. And I met him because actually it was Kimya. She happened to be selling merch at the Mercury Lounge one night. And uh, the CD that I was selling was that Freak Out, it's Ben mm -hmm. Queller, basically the illegal bootleg I made. And she was like, oh, my God, you got to meet my friend Adam because his CD looks just like yours. And literally like our two CDs, I should pull it up on. Uh, you can edit this, right? If I yes. have a little yep. dip there yep. for a second. But like, so like Adam Green. I'll share my screen, Adam Green. Well, whatever. We could do it later. It, basically, our CDs, it was like a black and white photo of me with a rainbow behind me. And that's what Adam did for his CD. It was so weird. Like, it was the same artwork, but we didn't know each other yet. And then he introduced me to this little band, The Strokes, who was also playing in the Lower East Side. And, like, we would just all hang out. It was just like what you did. And you go out and see each other play. And also, Not A Surf was around, even though they kind of came up in the 90s, they were having their sort of mm -hmm. resurgence in the early 2000s, and then Mooney Suzuki and the Walkman, and holy shit. I mean, it's it was such a scene. And it felt like what Seattle must have, what I kind of envisioned Seattle mm -hmm. feeling like, you know? Yeah. Just always a gig and people supporting each other. I mean, that was the other cool thing. Because moving to New York, you have kind of a fear like, fuck, like, is everyone just out for themselves? And, you know, like, like, it's just like a, a, rate, a rat race, you know, yeah. like competitive, like. But it was very community, like, just the community was very supportive, which was amazing. Yeah, it's um, it was it was cool. Uh, so I'm I'm in uh, I'm in New Jersey, and um, it was cool just as a fan back then, especially because I was I was in my twenties, and yes. um, living so close to New York and being in the city all the time. But growing up in the eighties and nineties, there was not much of a scene. I mean, I was a kid in the eighties. The '90s, there wasn't much of a scene, um, which right. is, and people think, you know, New York's always had this great music scene, but that's not that's not the case. And it was like I, you know, I grew up in the '80s, so I just missed out on punk rock. You know, it's like when you're born and yeah. then you feel like, oh, I just missed the party. Like everything yeah. was sounds like it was pretty yeah. cool till I showed up. It was pretty good around seventy nine eighty with Ramones and yes. Talking Heads, and, right. you know, right, right, Monty and right television. But I, but I was four, <laughs> so. right? Yeah. 
not happen. Yes. But also Jersey, man, you had Maxwell's, which mm-hmm. I mean, that, what a great spot, yes. you know, in Hoboken. Yes. I remember, I remember, like, I, I, I geek out on these things because I'm like, I'm, I'm a comedian by default. Like I just, if I had, if I had musical talent, that's the direction I would have much preferred to go in, but, um, didn't, didn't work out that way, but I still, I still geek out on it. So like, I remember the first time, uh, doing stand up at Maxwell's and then yeah. just being on that stage and just thinking of like all the people, yeah. uh, who have stood there before you, I, yeah. I, I geek out on that shit. Like, um, I my I come from a musical family. It just all skipped me. So, okay. <laughs> so like my brother could play. He could pick up an instrument and play it by ear, and and just kind of. I mean, he's not like great, but if he if he had yeah. if he had tried, he probably would have been great. But my my grandfather was a um, a band leader in the fifties and sixties. He played the trumpet and he had his own orchestra, and. Um, I got to play I, – I played this old music hall in Pennsylvania uh, about a year or two ago and, and I texted my mom like the name of the place and was like, did grandpa ever play here? Because I was told that it was this destination spot. Like that was one of the only music halls uh, around. So everybody would go there. And as soon as I told her the name of the place, she was like, yeah, grandpa used to he, – he played there all the time. And yeah, so it was like, oh, man, like I, I got to be on the stage that my grandpa was on. Uh, yeah, dude, that's really cool. Yeah. So um, yeah, but it felt like – it felt like that was sort of – at least to me, like sort of like Rock's last uh, – Kind of was, yeah. I mean, as far as rock, you know, because then you think like hip hop, you know, Atlanta really kind of happened and had their moment in the hip hop world and R&B, like in the mid 2000s, in the 10s. But like for rock music, like what is going on with rock music? Like, I don't know. Yeah. There's good bands, but there's really not. I mean, like music with guitars, like it's not really... I don't know. I still use them though. I love it, my guitar. <laughs> it's 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 uh, it's crazy to me to say like when like when the Rolling Stones are putting out one of the best rock albums of the year, yeah. and, and and it's a great album, and uh, but they're like eighty, and it's like yeah. how, how why isn't is the new classical music or something like I <laughs> like I don't know. Um. Your uh, your shows at Racket, by the way, that's that's where they just did their record release party. Yes, I heard that. Yes, everyone was texting me. They're like, "Dude, the venue, like, if the Stones were there, the venue, yeah. the venue looks incredible." I just, I don't know if you, if you saw. Um, they released a clip where that that song they do with uh, Lady Gaga. But right, I've the, seen that. The venue on the the venue looks the venue looks incredible. So that is. Um, November yeah, it used to oh yeah keep going. oh no, November eighteenth and nineteenth at Racket in New York City exactly. you, you can see Ben Queller and eighteenth is sold out nineteenth there's still some tech tickets left but I wanted to say Racket was wasn't that a venue back in the day called the High Line or something I I. I don't know, to be honest. I remember the High Line. I just don't know if that's the same. I, I feel like it is. Cause I know that, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it is the High Line. Cause I, I, I've been there because it's like Chelsea meatpacking mm-hmm. area. Yep. Yeah, we got to do some research. But anyway, it is called Racket. <laughs> and I know it's, it's now a new venue because a lot of um, musicians that I talked to were all like, yeah, what is up with that new place? So it's like a new place. So. You know, I'm excited. I like playing a new, a new joint. Yeah, it it looked uh, it looks like it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I was I I I found something super interesting. Uh, looking just watching you on YouTube. Um, okay. I saw you. Uh, you came out with the Foo Fighters. Um, yeah. I don't. I just. I don't know if you've done it more than once, but the, this. I watched this one clip of you coming. Yeah, one. Yeah. And what I noticed 
right away was usually when somebody brings up, you know, like uh, uh, a guest star, it's like yeah. they'll just say, you know, welcome, welcome whoever, you know, welcome yeah. Lady Gaga. And then she comes out and Dave, Dave Grohl spent five or six minutes just talking about what great friends you were and, and how much he loves you and 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 kind of breaking your balls a little bit and um it hit me like oh he like he's not lying like it was starting to get into yeah. like like bruce springsteen's story uh <laughs> i know well dave, dave is like pretty much there in the spring springsteen level of you know oratory yeah the state like he's like definitely getting there we're like 10 years away maybe from dave being this <laughs> like but he's clearly on his way to that level of storytelling um yeah i mean dave we go way back because um the guy that signed radish to mercury records who was the president of mercury in the nine in the in 1996 was Danny Goldberg, who was Nirvana's manager. So Nirvana's manager signed Radish, discovered Radish. So um, I definitely met Dave when I was young. I think we first met at Reading Festival in the UK. Um, and then just over the years, it shows seeing each other. And um, that particular ACL was a special one because um, – ACL for a long time was just one weekend and then they moved it to two weekends, mm -hmm. which was kind of cool. Cause if you're like one of the headliners or one of the larger acts, you'll play both weekends and a band like the food fighters don't really have to leave town to go make more money to play another gig. So what they would do is, is they would just stay at a hotel all week. So they're in Austin all week. And so that ACL, uh, the foods basically rented out a little boutique hotel called hotel St. Cecilia. And they set up a studio in Dave's hotel room. Mm -hmm. And so in the middle of the week, I was hanging out with them and they were recording. And there, there happened to be this one song uh, called St. Cecilia. And I'm sitting next to Dave and Taylor was there too. Rest in peace. Um, and we're just like bobbing our heads. And I'm like singing this harmony. And Dave was like, get your ass in the fucking vocal booth right now and sing that harmony, dude. And the vocal booth was his bedroom with like pillows and like <laughs> hangers, you know, it's like the DIY shit you do, like in your yeah. dorm. Like well, I'm trying to record, you know? And, um, and so uh, I went in and, and I sang that. It was just, a, that was a special night. And then, yeah, he was like, dude, like you should come and sit in on something at the show. And I was like, let's do big me. So that's just that was one of my faves always. Um, but going back to that night recording with them, that was really special. There isn't really any footage of that, but there are some photos of that night somewhere. Um, but it was special because it was really like me, Dave and Taylor together. And, you know, Taylor and Dave were just such a combo together, you know, um, listening to music with them was really fun i mean it was kind of just like be hanging out with beavis and butthead in a way because like they were just both like just so into it like yeah. ah, you know it just had that i don't know man they were like brothers it and seemed I like i mean it's it came uh, across like and you never know what's really you know but it, it was real it came, dude. it came across like it and um yeah. uh I just saw them, man. They are so they're so fucking good live. And um I've a I, I had a funny Dave Grohl did me the biggest favor without obviously knowing he, he was doing me a favor. But um we took uh my girlfriend's oldest daughter it her loves Foo Fighters. So oh. they were playing um Asbury Park, like on the beach for a festival. Uh, a couple months ago and um her my girlfriend's daughter fucking hates my taste in music like just anything i put on she's like turn this shit off okay. and what yep. and what i do um like when they're at the end of the night when when we're in bed and then they come in to say goodnight to their mom if if they're taking too long i'll just put on shit that i know they hate so it'll like drive yep. them out of the room 
I'll go to and and the number one thing that gets them out of the room the fastest is Devo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. We, and Devo is one of my, yeah, uh, going back yeah. as a kid, one of my absolute favorite bands. Amazing. Yeah. And I, and I'll try and, and uh, the oldest is such a fan of music. So I'll try and like, Hey, like, I know you've never heard of this band, but let me tell you how influential they are and some of the things they've done. And I was telling her, I was like, you have no idea. Like, Devo should be in the Hall of Fame. They are one of the most influential bands to come out of America. And I, I was like reading her this list of bands that they've influenced, including Nirvana. Like, Nirvana's covered them, Soundgarden. These bands that she likes, but she sure. – and uh, she's always just like, I don't care. Like, just shut up about Devo. And then we took them to see Foo Fighters and uh, fucking Foo Fighters covered Devo. They did Whip It. Yes. When they, when they, when they bring when – they, when he's introducing, when he's introducing the, the band. Yeah, he plays like Bobby, a snippet. He, yeah. Yep. Yeah, drummer. The drummer played with Devo. Yeah, exactly. And gotcha. – and uh, then Dave started talking about how amazing Devo is. And if you don't like them, he's got no time for you. And she just looked up at the sky and was like, what the fuck? <laughs> she got schooled. Yes. And you're like, yeah, exactly. See? Yeah. And it and it didn't change anything. Like, she wasn't like, no, oh, I will not. start listening to this 40-year-old band yeah. then. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um. Oh, tell me about there. There's um, I saw a few interviews about this on YouTube. Uh, tell me about this bloody nose. Oh yeah, the bloody nose, the famous bloody nose. That was also at ACL Fest. Um, I think in 2006. So we'd been on tour, and you know these tour buses are very dry and. The AC is usually cranked down to like 66 degrees. And basically, we were coming from California. We showed up in Texas. We're parked by the stage at ACL Fest. And I'm getting dressed in the back of the bus. And uh, I noticed something wet on my nose. And it was blood. And I was like, okay, it's a bloody nose. Big whoop. But it was both nostrils, which was kind of different, you know? And so I was like, oh, that's weird. And so I pinched my nose, tried to wait 15 minutes. And, you know, as time kept going by, it just like wasn't stopping. It was really kind of a weird thing. And my father's a physician, actually. And he was with me on the bus. And like we had people on the bus and I was just like pinching it and like trying to figure it out. And finally it got stable. And I'm sitting in the front of the bus and and now like the ACL people heard that I have a bloody nose, but I'm supposed to go on in like five minutes. And so they come on the bus and they're like, hey, dude, if you don't want to go on, like we could get you to the hospital and we could just like tell the crowd that you have a, a nosebleed and you can't play. I was like, fuck that, dude. That's like the <laughs> lamest. Like, uh, attention, Ben Collar uh, has a nosebleed. And we'll be <laughs> and no, I would I would be furious. If, if I was a fan, I would I'm, be furious. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, we going to go on, bro. No, bleed or not. <laughs> so basically, I'm like, no, I'm good. And we get it kind of stable. It's like not bleeding. And they're like, all right, it's fucking showtime. So I open the the door, the the tour bus door, and that Texas heat just hits me. And I'm like, oh God. And I kind of kind of feel it moving down yeah. a little bit. Fuck it. Here we go. And so I just walk up the ramp. I grab my guitar and I told the crowd, I'm just like, hey, I'm bleeding out of my face, but uh, you know, I'm just gonna stay up here as long as I can. And and then we just like played the heaviest songs we had. And I think I got through like four of them because then an ambulance showed up and they were very concerned. It was like a health hazard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I remember my guitar tech, Gremlin, he, he's, he ran up to me and he was like, dude, put this in your nose. And it was a cigarette filter, which I was like, actually, like, that's a pretty good idea. Like smart, yeah. you know? Way to MacGyver some shit on stage. So <laughs> cigarette filter, I put it in, but it just fell right out too small. And that's when I had this idea. And I'm like, hey, does anyone have a tampon? And then hundreds of tampons <laughs> just get thrown at me. And so like I they were waiting around, for it. They were oh, expecting yeah. you to ask. Oh, man. 
I uh, I just had all these tampons to choose from, so I picked like a blue one and a pink one. Tried one of each, and I I put them in my my face. Then it worked too well, and I felt like my fucking head was going to explode. Um, so then I think I might have even pulled them out, and that was pretty disgusting. I mean, it it got pretty gnarly, and yeah. then they were just like, "Yo, like you got like the health department's going to shut this." <laughs> It's not good, you know. And then, of course, all the rumors started. It's like, oh, Queller's just on coke, yep. you know, doing blow and shit. The irony is, when I got to the hospital, the doctor's like, okay, well, we have to administer liquid cocaine to cauterize the wound. So, what it was was a there's like a capillary behind my forehead that bur- burst, like up in my in front of my brain and shit. I still don't oh understand. My God. But it was like something, and he was like, yeah, it's the dryness. Like, you were dehydrated and blah, blah, blah. And and then that night, wow, this is kind of some full circle shit, because that night, it, it was the same year that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers headlined. Uh, and so we were at the Four Seasons, where we used to always stay. when cause I'm still living in New York at this time, but when we would play ACL Fest, they'd put us up at the Four Seasons, which is a great hotel uh, in Austin. It's got a beautiful backyard on the river. And Petty and the Heartbreakers were staying there as well. And I remember Mike Campbell walked in, the guitar player. Mm-hmm. Hey, man. He's like, I heard about the nosebleed. <laughs> He's like, well... Is like, it's all about humidity, man. He's like, we learned from Dylan years ago, you got to roll with the windows down. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, in the tour bus, those buses get too dry. I'm like, you're right. And he's like, I take a humidifier with me wherever I go. And I was like, okay, noted. So then I like that really, like Mike Campbell schooled me and educated me on some humidification methods. And also just the telling me, I just love that it was like Dylan taught us years ago. You got to roll with the windows down. That's so (laughs) funny too, because especially like everybody thinks, oh, he's on cocaine. And then it's the least rock and roll. It's like, no, I I was dehydrated and it was humid. (laughs) Yeah, it was humid and hot, dry and hot. And I know it's just like, we're just, and, and then Wayne Coyne, did a blood thing. Yeah, he came up to me and was like, bro, you stole my act, man, because the lips were doing a blood thing. Mm-hmm. All that. I'm like, yeah, but mine was real, dude. Straight <laughs> up. I win ACL this year, fucker. So that was good. But what's funny, man, is now I'm doing the Shaw Shot 20th anniversary thing, and, and we just played L.A. this past weekend on Saturday. And Mike Campbell came, Mike Campbell Campbell. came sat in with us. Oh, that's so cool. And so we did two songs together and I was actually, we were talking about that bloody nose and I was like, yeah, remember you were telling me all about how Dylan told you guys to roll with the windows down. And he was like, really? I don't remember Dylan saying we got to roll with the windows down, but it sounds right. You know, it's just so funny. (laughs) We all have jamnesia. That's what you call this jamnesia. When you've been doing music this long, comedians can use it too. But it's like you just start forgetting. Yes. You know, and that guy, if you're a heartbreaker, you got serious case of jamnesia. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, yeah, I can't imagine like I I think about how many jokes I've already forgotten that I ever written or performed. Yes. Yes. How many venues I've already forgotten yes. about. Do you write down your jokes? Do you have a word doc? I do not. Un, un, I am. Uh, I am pretty lazy, which is when it comes to the actual writing, which is which is weird because um, I I take a lot of pride in my writing, but my process is. I mean, everyone's got their own process. Sure. W- what I'll do is. I still use Facebook like like you know an old person and I'll if something funny or a premise comes to me I'll just throw it up on Facebook not yeah. even not even so much like I know okay now if it gets a huge reaction then maybe I'm on the something and I can bring right, that right, to the stage right. but I do it more just because if I'm putting it on Facebook it doesn't feel like I'm doing work if I sit right. down with a pen and a notebook and I'm like now it's time to write some jokes then that feels like work, and then I feel like, well, I'm I'm adverse to that, you know. Got you. That's so, kind of cool. So you're do, it's like a 
Yeah, you're archiving it, but you're doing it publicly, which is kind of fascinating. And, I like that. And then what I'll do, like I'll I'll have, you know, if I'm doing a 40-minute set and I know, well, I want to do these four or five things, then I'll be like, well, what else do I want to do? And I'll sit in the green room and I will scroll through my tweets or Facebook and I'll be like, oh, I liked that premise. And then I'll just take it on stage and and I record every set. Um, and then I'll just take it on stage and I it's, – so it's sort of uh, like I'm writing it on stage a little bit. like that. I like that. And then you can go back and listen. Oh, I liked what I said there and uh, that – I should probably drop that bit. Um, I love it. I love it. Now, do you – are you fond of jokes, just good old-fashioned? Like were you always into jokes? Yes. As a kid? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I loved them. You know, like I had I had an uncle who who was like – the joke this guy. is your source of street jokes, you know. Yes, he dude. he was he was a, he's a stockbroker, so he'd speak to hundreds of people a day. And then if he heard a good joke, and now it's weird. Like now I'm in comedy, and I feel like I never hear uh, street jokes anymore. No, you don't. No. Yeah. Um, so you need to be backstage at a at a concert, and you might hear. Well, well, so. I was just doing all these dates with Ed Sheeran, mm -hmm. like opening for him all summer, and he loves jokes, just like me. Yeah. I mean, that's all we would do. And by street jokes, you just mean like a quick story and a punchline, yep. right? Or yep. a why well, do blah, 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 yep. do blah, blah. Yeah, right. Like my favorite one that uh, Ed loves to tell, which is like telling jokes with Ed Sheeran is, is like an extra layer of funny because he's got his British accent, which is so great but he loves redneck jokes. Mm -hmm. So it's like hearing him do a redneck accent. So his favorite one is, you know, why, why do rednecks not like reverse cowgirl? Why, why don't rednecks do reverse cowgirl? Why? Because you never turn your back on family. <laughs> and that's a really good joke. That's a really good joke. But hearing him with his British trying to do a redneck is like extra oh, awesome. Because you never turn your back <laughs> on family. What a smart joke. And so, you know, I always say this, like, it's really not even about the content a lot of times with jokes. I think what I personally and, and other musician friends of mine, what we love about it, it's like the play on words. And it's just that puzzle that's made. I mean, it's a lot like songwriting. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like choruses and songs have punchlines, you know, it doesn't feel that way sometimes, but they do, whether it's a musical turn of events or a twist of a phrase. Right. Like, There's a format to all of it. Yes. yes. And it's the cleverness, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's what we're like, fuck, this is so good, you know? Um, here, here's where, here's where I think, um, and we've, and we've had this conversation with so many uh, musicians and comedians, but where I think... Where I think you guys got it really good is you come up with a great song and then everybody's like, I want to hear that song and then I want to hear it again. And if I see you next week, I want to, you know, if I see you 20 years from now, you better be doing that song I love. And with right. us, you hear the joke once and then they're like, all right, well, what else? Like when I, they, I they come to see you, they're like, I don't want to hear, you know, because well, there's such an element of surprise in what we do. There is. But like, is there? And I've thought about that, actually, because I love comedy. And, you know, one of my favorite comedians is Jerry Seinfeld. And mm -hmm. I've, I've actually seen him, you know, live like two or three times. And he definitely does recycle a few things. Of course. But, yeah. But it's kind of like for me. When he's talking about the garage and how it should be called the garbage because that's where all the fucking trash goes, you know, <laughs> the whole thing about the garage is really good. You know, I love some Jerry humor. It's just clean fun. But it is like hearing McCartney sing, hey, Jude, like I kind of like hearing some recurring bits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's balance. But, but, mo but most people, it's like, well, we, we've already heard that. Um, yeah. I, I although <laughs> although what is nice what that does give us is that everybody's always excited about your new shit. Everybody's like, what's next? What's new? And I, and I feel like true. with, I feel like with bands and musicians, everybody wants you to stay they get hung up. Yep. Yes. They get hung up in your past and your old material. And then you're like, Hey, here's a new song. And everybody gets up to, to go to get a drink. Yeah. And I was like, Oh man, that's just, it's gotta feel, um, 
so frustrating and and almost even like disrespectful almost like yeah but yeah with us everybody's just like well all right well i heard that once so tell me about your new shit let's let's hear the new stuff um it's yeah it's yeah there man i mean comedy is a tough art form brother i mean that is a freaking that's scary going up there doing stand-up Mm. Yeah, well, you know, I bet it's. I mean, you must do um, solo shows, right? Like just you and a guitar. But I just feel like I'm. I I got my guitar, and I I don't know singing. It's just like walking up without music and just with a microphone, be like, all right, I'm about to try to make you guys laugh. Like, fuck. Yeah, especially when they don't know who you are. Especially when they don't know who you are. And like music, at least even if they don't like it, like you can just play some music and like fill up the room with music. Like, I don't know, like, like comedy, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. It has like a singular mission where music, right. It can be a lot of different things. Yes. It can pump you up. It can chill you out. It can, um, boy. I'm really impressed, man. There's some good comedy online right now. Like there, there's and and in Austin, you know, like there's, there's a great like a, yeah. There's a good scene in Austin. Pop in here, there's yep. shit popping. Yep. And I'm really impressed. I think one of my favorites right now is this guy Matt Reif. Have you seen him? I've I've I see his name everywhere, but I haven't okay, I haven't everywhere. actually watched. Yeah. He kind of he, his his thing is like. He does like these Q and A's. It's really bizarre. Like I don't quite know how he gets to this point where his audience is asking him questions, but it's some of the wittiest off the cuff shit I've ever seen. Yeah, like it really like it's just really he's very quick on his toes. It's it's good. You have to be, but that's that's an impressive skill too. You know, um, that's like the equivalent of like you know in music, it's like some people can freestyle lyrics and mm-hmm. some people really got write it down. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, so, when yeah, you, you, I'd read about like Iggy Pop recording or Bowie recording, and they would yep. just get up to the mic and just start shouting out different phrases, and then they yep. would be like, "Well, I guess that's good enough. That's the song." Yep. And um, but it fucking worked. This is a thing. Yeah, and so, you're and you're trying to figure out the meaning of the lyrics, and whoa, it's, it's so you know open yeah. to interpretation. It was like, no, they just. They came unprepared and that fit the music. Exactly. <laughs> um, oh, speaking of uh, speaking of comedy and music, we, uh, we should very quickly talk about the bass player in your band. Oh, yes. He yes. likes comedy. <laughs> so, yeah. And he, he, uh, he was supposed to be here today, but couldn't make it. But couldn't um, make it. Um, yeah. He uh, is an amazing bass player. His name's Chris Mintz Plas. Everywhere he goes, people just shout McLovin at him because he was McLovin and super bad. He's a great actor. Um, I really I know him as a bass player first, which is funny because he had a band called Main Man and the drummer Ryan and uh, Chris was the bass player. Um, Main Man opened for me before the pandemic. So we all became really good friends. So I like met Chris as a bass player. I actually had never seen super bad. Oh, he um, must've been, I, that must've been a relief for him. I bet. Yeah. He loves that. When people <laughs> don't have any idea. Uh, and uh, yeah. So we, we toured together when his band opened. And then after the pandemic, I was starting to play shows again. And I just thought of him and Ryan, cause they were just like great dudes, great players. And uh, they've been my rhythm section pretty much since COVID. Um, and it's really hilarious because, you know, I mean, he does tons of film work, trolls and like these huge blockbuster mm-hmm. movies. He's a very well-known actor in Hollywood. Um, but all he cares about is music. You know, that's like really his, he's like, yep. I just want to play music. And like now it's really funny. He's like, dude, with this actor strike, like just book as many fucking shows as you want, bro. Like we're just, let's go. So, you know, it's really, it's that's very, very cool. Um, and he's such a professional. He's always wanting to rehearse and work on tunes. Like it's really, it's cool. Um, Let me, uh, so let me ask you this and, and then I will let you get out of here. Um, and thank you, by the way, thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Um, November, listen, November 18th is sold out, 
but yeah. uh, November 19th at Racket in New York City. There's still a few tickets left. And, sure. and uh, let's 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 push these through and let's sell out both shows. Heck yeah. And you can go to BenQueller.com. That's B-E-N-K-W-E-L-L-E-R.com. Yeah, you can get you can get all your information there. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to ask you this because you, you started so young, you started at 12 years old. Yeah. What was, or do you even remember? I, I, I don't know, not your first, but what, do, do you have a memory of? First blow do, up? Um, <laughs> I, well, that's not what I was going to ask. <laughs> I know. But it's going? not a bad way to close out the show. Oh my God. Um, no, do, do, do you remember like? Did you have a moment on stage ever where I don't know if you were opening for somebody or or there you know somebody came out um, where you just looked around and were like holy shit I cannot believe I I cannot believe where my life has taken me like like we, I dropped yeah. out of school in the ninth grade like yeah right and the and now moment. I'm on stage with the yeah. Foo Fighters yeah well I think it was. Uh, the moment, the oh shit moment for me, where it just, I'm like, am I living a dream? Was actually when Radish went to LA for the first time and uh, the president of Interscope Records, Jimmy Iovine, was having a party and invited us to this party. Cause there was like an Evander Holyfield boxing match that mm -hmm. like only five people in the States had access to piped into their house. And he was one of them. So he had this big party and all these people were coming. It was so insane because I was a small town kid from Texas. And like at this party was Dr. Dre, Axl Rose, Tom Petty. That was the first time I yep. met Petty when I was 15. And just all of these people who, as a small town Texan, the only thing, the only way I knew about music was Rolling Stone magazine, whoever was on the cover, yep. or MTV, or the radio station. But like with Rolling Stone, you would never have, like in my mind, Dre and Axel are in complete different worlds. Yes. But like here they are in one house and they're all just artists. Like, that's what I was like, whoa, like, wow, this is crazy, you know? And like, and I, I had my guitar with me and like, we had like a little sing along, which is a whole other story. And Joe Strummer was there. I'm like, oh, oh fuck. Yeah. See, that would have been my moment. Like just yeah, ignored that, everyone you know, in the room. So, fucking Joe Strummer. Holy yes, shit. It was just fucked up. And so I think that was the first moment where I was like, wow, like this is very, this is a different chapter of work, you know, like I'm just now entering some different shit here. That's so, fucking wild. Um, I just got goosebumps here in that. Mm, there was a stage moment. I will just throw this in where I did a show early on. So, at, so I'm solo now. And I, I did a show uh, with, it was me, then the flaming lips and then the violent Femmes. Mm -hmm. The violent Femmes are one of my favorite art bands of all time. And uh, I was doing a radio interview to promote the show. The show was in Chicago. I'm talking a few days before the gig. I'm talking to the radio DJs like, hey, so can you believe you're opening for the Violent Femmes? It's like your favorite band. I'm like, yeah, dude, like this is fucking like dream come true. Can't believe it. He's like, awesome. I'm talking to them next. I'm going to tell them you want to sit in with them. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Like, fuck, dude, that's yeah. ridiculous. But anyway, I mean, he's like, all right, I'm just kidding. I show <laughs> up to the gig and and Gordon Gano walks up to me, the singer. He's like, hey, dude, I heard you want to sit in. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, so clearly like this radio station guy set it up and I almost didn't do it. But my bass player was like, dude, you got to you got to do it. Like, yeah. You have to go up on stage. So we did add it up. Mm -hmm. Why can't I get just one kiss? Yeah. yeah. I can't get Dude, I think I jumped up and down playing my guitar <laughs> the whole fucking time. That was definitely a milestone. That was a milestone moment. That's so cool. And I'm sure uh, if 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 someone had sat 12-year-old you down and oh. been like, been like, hey, this is as far as you're gonna make it. You're gonna get to open for the violent femmes. You would have been like, I've fucking made it. That's a that my I could, yeah. Good. I'm good. <laughs> 
Totally. Oh, that's so cool. I love hearing stories like that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time chatting with me. Yes. No, thank, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And, uh, I'm, uh, I, I hope, I hope these shows sell out and, uh, thank you also because I, I went back and started listening to your music and, uh, you, you have awesome. a new, you have a new fan now. That's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So, um, all right. November 18th and 19th racket in New York city. You can go to benqueller.com, uh, for tickets and info. And, um, Oh, I have something. Uh, Wednesday, December 27th, I am shooting uh, a special and recording my next stand-up album at um, Stress Factory in New Brunswick. You can go to stressfactory.com for tickets. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>